0: On August 21, 2023, KEI and the Mansfield Foundation hosted a discussion of the trilateral summit between the US, Japan, and South Korea. The first panel featured representation from both the US Department of State and the US Air Force, with the second panel featuring speakers from the Albright Stonebridge Group, the Mansfield Foundation, and KEI.
1: here in person at KEI in Washington DC, watching on KEI's YouTube channel, or tuning in on C-SPAN. I'm Mark Tokela of KEI. We're delighted to be partnering with the Mansfield Foundation today to bring you this discussion of the trilateral meeting held among Presidents Biden, South Korean President Yoon, and Japanese Prime Minister Kishida at Camp David on August 18th. So we're going to do this in two parts. The first being an authoritative look at the summit outcome with Seth Bailey from the State Department and Lieutenant Colonel Luke Deckard from the Pentagon. The second part will then be an independent look at the outcome of the summit with Eric Altbach of the uh, Albright Stonebridge Group, Sari Rome from the Mansfield Foundation, and Clint Work, a colleague of mine here at KEI. So we will save time for audience questions at the end of each session, each panel. So for those of you watching online, please feel free to submit your questions at any time on the YouTube live chat. Okay, so first, um, Seth Bailey from the State Department is the Director of the Office of Korean and Mongolian Affairs. Lieutenant Colonel Luke Deckard is a Japan Country Director for the Deputy Undersecretary of the Air Force for International Affairs at the Pentagon. So before we get into details, uh, can I ask both you gentlemen uh, kind of a top-line question? So if you bumped into a friend on the street, and he or she asked you how the Camp David summit went, what would be your brief explanation? That first. Yeah. Thank,
2: thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here with you, uh, and uh, Luke, a pleasure to be on this panel with you as well. I should start by saying I have kind of wonky friends, so... <laughs> So, you know, I think that uh, there are three things that I would uh, mention uh, as kind of the top line big things to take away. Uh, For me personally, maybe one of the most exciting uh, moments in the press conference was when President Biden paraphrased his now famous uh, line when he was uh, whispering to President Obama and talking about uh, the passage of the Affordable Care Act. And when he turned to Prime Minister Kishida and, and to President Yoon and he said, this is a big deal. And uh, I think that that's exactly right. This is historic. It is a big deal. And the reason it is a big deal is because of the leadership and the initiative that has gone into to, uh, this historic summit. Um, You know, as a U.S. government official, it's easy for me to think about the effort that has gone on the U.S. government side and uh, the ways in which we've worked to bring this uh, to pass. Uh, But I I think it's very appropriate and important for us to acknowledge um, the leadership and the courage of uh, President Yoon and and Prime Minister Kushida and and the way that this came together is really um, monumental. So I I think that that's one important thing. I think that another uh, thing that's been talked about in the press is the kind of institutionalization of uh, many of the meetings uh, at the defense minister level, the foreign uh, minister level. Um, a finance minister and, and so many others. And I, I think that, of course, the most important of those being the annualized meetings that uh, is going to happen at the leader level. So I, I think that that's very important. The annualization and the regularization of these meetings is, is my second top line. And then finally, um, maybe I'm overly focused on myself and, and my team, but uh, in addition to the kind of macro look at this, I think that there is an awful lot of very important deliverables that are are in uh, this summit. Uh, And we're going to be working over the course of the next months and years to make sure that those deliverables have the biggest impact possible. So whether it's cyber or people-to-people, economic technology, of course, there's uh, security um, deliverables, uh, women's empowerment, Uh, All of these things are extremely important, and uh, those are kind of my three top takeaways. It's a big deal. Leadership matters, and we've got a lot of work to do.
1: Okay, thank you. You're right. The, The press conference after the summits are always interesting to watch. You can read the documents, and documents are important and lasting. But to see uh, the three the two presidents, the prime minister, uh in front of the microphones at Camp David, you could tell how much they invested in that meeting. It yeah. was it was quite palpable. Congratulations to you and your team, by the way. It must be very satisfying now that everything came out. It, now, you've, now
2: you've got some work to do. Yeah, now we have real work to do. So
1: what would you tell your friend?
3: Hi, Mark. Yeah, thank you for uh for having me here and Seth, uh it's it's great to be here with you. So if I was uh, talking to any of my friends, which most of them are in the military or in defense channels right now, um, I would say that the uh, trilateral cooperation between our countries are at a turning point Um, within defense channels. There wasn't a plethora of new initiatives. There's already been a lot going trilaterally uh, uh, between uh, the three militaries. Um, and within the uh, the defense sectors, um, however, what this does is it gives us the opportunity to do more, and that's what we need to be doing. We need to, we need to do more, particularly in exercises. Uh, a lot was discussed about the maritime exercises that have been happening uh, between the three countries, and I think now we have an open door to increase. Uh, the amount and level of and scope of exercises that we do among the three countries outside of just the maritime domain. There's a lot of other exercises that happen uh, that all three countries participate in, but they're generally multilateral in nature. With with this, now we have the opportunity to focus on true trilateral exercises uh, and and to combine all all the domains uh, into one. Um, It also, I think to me, I would, I would also tell one of my friends that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm work very closely with Japan. Uh, I don't work as closely with South Korea. uh, But what I have noticed is that South Korea, I believe is at a turning point to work uh, more throughout the entire Indo-Pacific. I believe this trilateral is, is, is set to lead a free and open Indo-Pacific more so than it ever has in the past. And so I hope that we see that in the future.
1: Okay, thanks. I'm not to plunge into detail already. Uh, so, Seth, have we settled on a terminology to use for what came out of the meeting? Um, I've seen references to the Camp David agreement in the press, but does that refer to all three documents that came out? There was the spirit of Camp David joint statement. There was the Camp David principles and the commitment to consult. So are, does the agreement mean all three of those things, and why were there three of them? And then second, institutions, uh, what do we call this thing? Now, we, we talk about the quad, which means U.S., uh, Japan, I mean, yeah, uh, India, and Australia. We talk about the AUKUS, which is U.K., U.S., and Australia. But what do we call this thing?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. We need a good acronym. I think that's kind of we, – we focus so much attention on the substance, maybe we need to focus more attention on acronyms. But I, I think um, beyond calling it a big deal, we don't have – we don't have a great name for it yet. I'm sure that there will be some very creative uh, academic or think tanker or, or journalist who will come up with the right name for it. But the substance of it is, is very clear, even though um, how we describe it may not be uh, you know bumper stickerized. But um, you know, I mean, I, I think that if you one of the things that stands out to me substantively is the way that. Um, the, the very first two sentences of the joint statement began, um, you know, it talks about the three countries coming together and it, it, the phrase it says is we do so at a time of unparalleled. And then there's an opportunity for a noun there, right? Could be challenge, could be trouble, could be, um, uh, any number of, of nouns, but that's not what it, it says. It says we come together at a time of unparalleled opportunity. And I think that when we think about Camp David and the imagery associated with Camp David, uh, it's very appropriate that this was President Biden's first uh, use of Camp David as a, a, a symbol of peace, a symbol of opportunity. Um, so it's, uh, it, I think it fits very nicely with, with what we know about Camp David and how it's been used in the past.
1: Okay, to so get uber wonky. So why are, the th- why are the three documents rather than one? Do they have different status? No, I I don't think they have
2: different status. I think they serve different purposes. You know, the joint statement is, is significantly longer and has quite a lot of detail in it. Um, the, uh, commitment to consult statement is, is quite short. And in one paragraph explains what it is and another paragraph explains what it is not. And then, um, you know, the spirit of Camp David, I think kind of is a hybrid where we talk more about kind of the impact and, and the focus. So, um, I think each plays an important role and uh, kind of build together to uh, explaining and, and demonstrating what, what the intention of the summit was. Um, and each, each stands on its own as,
1: as well. Okay. I think we have a contest to come up with the right term for this. We'll, we'll work on that. I
2: think we have a suggestion box outside of the State Department cafeteria. <laughs> where people, can, people can make some recommendations.
1: Okay, Colonel, uh, the press has also talked about this um, outcome as being a security pact. Is that an accurate way to describe it?
3: I do not believe that a security pact is an accurate way to describe it. I think uh, when you when you hear a lot of the media, it makes it sound uh, very similar to a treaty alliance between the three countries, which it is far from that. Um, it is not the NATO of the indo-pacific um, it is a way for the defense organizations to coordinate and communicate closer with each other and uh, a lot of those terms were used frequently coordinate communicate information sharing uh, which do not imply projecting force or fighting together um, and and I think that's kind of what, uh, what what it seems like a lot of the media is saying when they when they when they talk about a security pact it's really uh, just a form of cooperation we have two distinct distinctly different treaties, uh, treaty alliances, uh, the U.S. and Japan and the U.S. and Korea. And uh, I think uh, uh, when the media explains uh, security pact, it also implies that Japan might be willing to come to the defense of South Korea and vice versa. I don't think we're there yet. I think we're just on the cooperate, communicate and consult level.
1: Okay. You mentioned that we already have defense treaties with uh, Korea and Japan separately. Those are actually treaties. Um, We have the United Nations command rear basing in Japan. We do joint exercises already. So what does Camp David actually add that's new to this? And while explaining that, could you please explain to us the difference between multi-domain, joint, and combined? All all three of those words were used in the press conference. Talk about the exercises.
3: Okay. uh, Yes. So we do already have the treaties. And and, um, although I do believe that this summit meeting was a turning point in the trilateral relationship, Uh, it, it doesn't add much on top of what is already there in defense channels, but it gives us the opportunity to add more as I was discussing earlier. Um, speaking of domains, before I get into the explanation of domains, uh, there's, there's a lot of exercises. There's a lot of cooperation that happens. Um, but it's not at the level that I think it could have been in the past. And so uh, with the summit meeting, we really have that that emphasis and that push for information sharing under our trilateral information sharing agreement uh, to increase even more. We already have mechanisms to utilize that, and so now we have the opportunity to uh, share more information and discuss more uh, uh, at that level at the def- through defense channels. Um, also, kind of like was I was alluding to earlier, there's a lot uh, of of maritime exercises between the three countries uh this gives us the opportunity to increase uh those exercises into the air domain into the land domain into the space domain cyberspace exercises uh cyber security uh and information uh, uh security as well which is uh which is very important sorry, sorry I should say information operations um but to go to your question about the uh, the difference between multi-domain joint and uh combined so those are very difficult to explain sometimes multi-domain being the most difficult multi-domain is uh essentially all the domains integrated into each other um, instead of taking a layered approach so historically the military has Uh, focused on a layered approach to domain operations. And if you look at the primary domains, air domain, maritime domain, land domain, they've been uh, fought at a layered approach. Multi-domain operations means that uh, they are all integrated together in the same fight. A joint task force commander is utilizing all of those domains at once for his decision making. And all the services are are creating their own multi-domain operations within the services as well. Joint would, of course, be all these services uh, fighting together or operating together, and combined would be uh, multiple countries uh, uh, fighting or operating together. To confuse you a little bit more, some countries like Japan do not like to use the word combined. They like to use the term joint uh, when operating with the United States. And so there can be some confusion there. Joint also means... Uh, two countries and when you're working with Japan. So combined is is something that we specifically in the United States use uh, to talk about multiple countries operating together.
1: That helps. Thanks. Um, I'm thinking too about military exercises kind of in general. During that long period when the um, U.S. and South Korea were not doing exercises, the question was raised about how important exercises are. So can you address a little bit whether these are, are photo ops to show the flags flying together, or does the military need to do exercises together?
3: The military absolutely needs to do exercises together. I mean, I mean, this that that is what creates readiness. Readiness creates deterrence. Deterrence uh, gets towards integrated deterrence with our allies and partners. So we need to do these exercises. And uh, although um, it did appear that maybe there was a time that we weren't exercising together, there have always been smaller exercises uh, happening. And uh, as was discussed in the trilateral summit, the ballistic missile... Uh, defense exercises that happen in the maritime domain uh, have been happening for years now. um, And I don't believe there was really ever much of a pause in those, um, even during COVID times uh, when a lot of other exercises uh, were having troubles because they were exercised in the maritime domain. uh, They continued during COVID and they were quite successful.
1: Okay. Uh, To turn to you, Seth, um, again, the meanings of these documents. So what is the significance of a commitment to consult? When following North Korean missile launches, the State Department usually says that the U.S. has consulted with Seoul and Tokyo. So will a commitment change what we actually do? I, I think the answer is yes and no.
2: And I, I'm glad that you raised the North Korea example because I think that that is maybe um, the quintessential example of the ways in which we have in, pa- in the past uh, consulted with each other. Uh, I can tell you that uh, whenever there is a North Korean provocation oftentimes it's it's within a matter of minutes that we're engaged with uh, our, our rock and, and Japanese counterparts. Um, and it happens very quickly. Uh, it's very well organized. And, um, you know, I think that our responses have been uh, clear and uh, decisive, easy to understand. The message that we're sending is easy to understand. And I, I think that the commitment to consult uh, is something that is envisioned to... Encompass more than just the DPRK. And so I think that what you're going to see is a commitment to consult across multiple types of provocations. And so, you know, just looking at the document here, uh, it says that we will uh, consult trilaterally in an expeditious manner to coordinate responses to regional challenges, provocations, and threats. And that's uh, not limited directly to the DPRK.
1: Regional challenges can mean a lot of things. I mean, is this commitment to consult based on security issues or could it be natural disasters or cyber attacks or how how broad is it? Yeah, it's not
2: limited. It's not limited to um, just security issues. And I think that what we see is a commitment across all three governments to address the challenges that face our respective governments and the region collectively. And of course, you know, that's what it is. And what it is not is in any way an abdication of existing decision-making authorities or powers. You know, each country retains the right to continue to make those decisions for itself. But what we're going to do is we're going to get together. We're going to uh, share information, align our messaging, and coordinate response actions.
1: Okay, Is that working level two or is it just on the hotline?
2: No, I think that it is more than just a, a hotline. It's it's at the working level, and like I said, with in the DPRK example, you know the response that that uh, we coordinate after a DPRK provocation, uh, you know, happens at multiple levels, and it happens very quickly. It's well organized.
1: Okay, well, let me stay with you, Seth. To talk about the reaction from other countries. I've been watching to see what North Korea says about the Camp David outcome, and I'm surprised they haven't said anything yet that I've seen. I might have missed something, uh, but China is reacting pretty vigorously. Uh, Lu Chao, who's an expert on the Korean Peninsula issues at the Liaoning Academy of Social Sciences, said, I'm quoting him, it is appropriate to say that the Camp David summit is possibly a starting shot for a new Cold War. You know, as someone who served as political section chief in the embassy of Beijing, are you surprised by that reaction?
2: Uh, well, I, I've known Lu Chao now for over a decade, so I'm not surprised. Uh, uh, you know, it, it reminds me of the last time you and I were together. Uh, we were at the Ulaanbaatar Dialogue in, in Mongolia, and uh, there were a number of presentations, including one from uh, the PRC, uh, uh, a scholar from Kicker, which is their uh, think tank affiliated with with the Ministry of State Security. She had a presentation of, of about 20 minutes, and she um, spent about 17 of those 20 minutes focused on the U.S.-Rock-Japan relationship, and then the last three minutes. Uh, after talking about the progress that had been made and how the three countries were coming together, spent about three minutes trying to tell everybody why that was such a bad thing. Um, And so, you know, clearly the PRC has been focused on this pre-summit as well and and focused uh, after the summit. I think that the best response to uh, the PRC's reactions uh, is that it is not a new Cold War. Uh, It is not an opening shot. We uh, are very focused on managing our relationship with the PRC in a constructive way. We've seen Secretary Blinken, Secretary Yellen, um, Special Envoy uh, John Kerry has gone repeatedly to Beijing. And so I think at the highest levels, you see a commitment to engage with the uh, the PRC in a constructive way, while at the same time addressing very serious concerns that we have about some PRC's behaviors that are uh, destabilizing in the region. Uh, and I think President Biden at the press conference uh, said it the best when he said that this summit and the relationship, the trilateral relationship, is not all about China. It's about much more than that. It's much broader than that.
1: Okay. In part, the Chinese reaction might have been stronger. I mean, do you see this as being kind of a pro forma reaction that they have to say, or do you think they're actually angered by this?
2: You know, after having spent the better part of a decade in China, I'm still very reluctant to try and get into their head and channel uh, channel what what they think uh, about these things. Um, you know, I, I don't know whether it whether they were evaluating a range of responses, stronger or or less strong. Uh, I know that the summit is um, uh, was not meant as a, an attack or a direct barrage on the PRC. It was designed to create deeper, more constructive relationships across a wide range of issues.
1: Okay, uh, thank you, and, and Colonel. Back to military cooperation. U.S. and Korean forces operate under a Combined Forces Command, a CFC. It's a rather complicated structure. We don't have a similar arrangement like that with Japan. So, is involving Japan further in defense planning is that complicate an already complicated mechanism further, or is it easy to kind of fold them into it? And then militarily, what capabilities do Korea and Japan have to offer each other and to us?
3: So incorporating Japan into continuing military military planning, I think, is uh, more important than ever right now. Although we do not have a CFC with Japan, I do not believe we will have a CFC with Japan. Um, uh, they are very, very distinctly different uh, military ways of cooperating uh, between the two countries. Um, I think, uh, you know, even when you look at the CFC in Korea, there's a lot of complications. Uh, already associated with the cfc uh korea's desire to move towards to a future cfc um under korean leadership uh and all the uh issues that have uh, gone along with getting towards that goal um when you look at it from a japanese perspective um modeling uh, any kind of relationship with uh japan uh based off of the cfc i think is is incorrect uh and and we shouldn't do that there probably needs to be something in between what we do right now with japan we work very well in parallel with japan bilaterally uh without a cfc but something in between what a cfc would be and uh the way that we currently operate with japan would be uh, very beneficial between the us and japan so uh that being said it is still critically important to continue uh working with japan military planning uh, if anything, from an integrated deterrence perspective, um, security cooperation throughout the Indo-Pacific, uh, doesn't have to be, uh, contingency planning. Uh, a lot of it is campaign planning and Japan has a lot to offer in campaigning throughout the Indo-Pacific. Uh, it's one of the ways that their self-defense forces get at a free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, um, that comes out of their government. The, uh. The last question that you asked me, which was, uh, what, what,
1: what, what capabilities do, Japan have to add
3: a, value yeah, added? Yeah. Wh- and, and do you mean that specifically by what would Japan have to add or vice versa?
1: Both. You know, how, well, how do the three partners contribute to each other's defense in a military sense?
3: That's right. Okay. Um, I think that's where, uh, the summit, uh, may have really pushed something very good. And that's increasing the trilateral exercises. So. Increasing readiness, having the countries trained together, learn how they operate, learn how do they utilize their equipment, learn how the U.S. and Japan operates, and let Korea observe that, and vice versa, let Japan observe how the U.S. and Korea operates together. And that will increase everyone's readiness uh, to, to increase that military capability. I think there's also a lot to be said with uh, security cooperation and defense industry. Um, I both countries rely very heavily on the U.S. for defense industry. I would like to see both of the countries take up uh, a greater amount of defense industry on their own and start providing uh, not only their own forces, but forces outside of their countries uh, with that defense industry capability that they're building. And I know Japan is working on that with the uh, uh, altering the three principles, um, which would allow them to uh, potentially export defense articles to other countries. And so I think uh, if they can move forward with that, then there's an opportunity for Japan and Korea to increase their military capabilities together through defense industry.
1: Yeah, actually, I've always had a question about the South Korean defense industry. Um, South Korea is often pointed to the defense industry as being one of the sectors that they'd like to grow. Does the U.S. welcome that, or do you prefer to have our own defense industries making everything we need?
3: I think our defense industry would, would want them to to use our defense industry but from uh, from a allies and partners perspective um you know i think the correct answer is we want we want allies and partners especially our closest allies allies to be able to produce uh, their own defense capabilities and uh, of course we we could even benefit from that by utilizing those defense capabilities if a country finds uh, a specialty say it's ai or space or something like that um then we may be able to reverse the way that we Uh, uh, do our security cooperation, which is primarily providing defense capabilities to another country and use those defense capabilities from another country in in our own defense industry.
1: Yeah. um, Thank you. And um, Seth, like you mentioned at the beginning, one of the most impressive aspects of the Camp David agreements are the institutional arrangements. The three governments are committing to a lot of meetings. And not just the three leaders are going to meet annually, but the cabinet and working level I guess if you're a bureaucrat, one of the things you look at when you're looking at a, a summit outcome is how much are they committing time to spend on the relationship? It looks like they're committing a lot. So does that replace any bilateral work we do with Korea and Japan, or is it all in addition to all of that that we do? Yeah, it
2: feels like it's all in addition to, to what we're doing. No, I, I think that um, uh, the trilateral relationship, as significant as it is, as important as it is, and as... Um, you know, historic as this summit is, is not meant to replace uh, the individual bilateral relationships. There will continue to be bilateral engagement, both between the United States and Japan and the United States and the Republic of Korea. And so this is going to augment that, it's going to add to it, certainly be some uh, additional level of work, but we welcome that. We're looking forward to it. And um, it, it's not going to result in a kind of shunting aside bilateral relationships, it's only going to make them stronger.
1: Okay. I'm curled back to you about, about, uh, the word security. I mean, one thing we're seeing here at KEI is that there seems to be a di- dissolving line between what we call national security and economics. So when you're thinking about security relationship, are you thinking about quantum and AI and uh, securing digital networks, or is it still in terms of military hardware and proper military?
3: you can't separate the two nowadays and i mean you mentioned ai cybersecurity. um all of those are are 100 integrated into uh the way that we're we're looking at the future war fight uh and and campaign um and, and of course space space operations we've created a new space force and and i know japan is is getting more and more actively involved in space and korea as well as well um uh the the defense industry ai in particular is 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 so unknown right now and Put and poses such a potential threat to the U S and to all three of our countries and to many other countries throughout the world. Um, if not, uh, if not integrated, uh, early on in the defense industry, uh, and the way that we, that we operate, uh, especially with our allies and partners, um, then we're going to be behind very quickly. And I know that, uh, specifically with Japan, I do know that, um, uh, we are, Talking more and more about how they can contribute to AI, uh, and I, I I don't know if those uh, discussions are happening with Korea right now. They they might be, um, but uh, we're we're really looking to our allies and partners, and Japan is definitely one of them uh, to try to contribute to AI as a, a security initiative.
1: You know, technology is one thing that brings the three countries together. So. Seth, would you comment on that? Are we having these talks with Korea, too, about high tech? Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that if you look at uh, Korea and the way that their industries are developing, whether it's the defense industry that we're very supportive of um, or uh, their progress on electric vehicles, uh, batteries, uh, semiconductors, of course, where they're a global leader, um, and uh, AI and quantum computing, where they're making incredible strides, I think that it's extremely important uh, that the trilateral deliverables have focused on each of those uh, technology and economic areas. Uh, it's going to bring us closer together. It's also going to make each each of the countries more effective and make them um, more competitive. And so I think that this is um, like I said, it's not just about the security aspects of the relationship. it's much more than that and this is one area where you know, the economic, the technological um, uh, cyber domains, Those things are are really ripe for additional cooperation between the three countries.
1: Okay, before I turn to audience questions, let me put one more question to you, Seth. That's about how this fits into the kind of jigsaw puzzles of Indo-Pacific agreements. There's a lot of them now. So does having a separate one with um, Korea and Japan add to or sort of detract from all the others? How do they fit together? I mean, how do we work with the Quad and IPEF and APEC and the new Korea-Japan-U.S. relationship? Do they fit together smoothly? they fit together
2: <laughs> yeah I, I think that they they fit together well and um you know there there are certainly some uh overlaps right you wouldn't want each one of these things to be completely discrete because then you know you end up having gaps in between them um and i think that for example I, you may be referring to the indo pacific uh, dialogue that was uh, uh, announced as one of the deliverables No, that's that's an important uh, dialogue between the United States, Japan and uh, the Republic of Korea. It's going to focus on some discrete specific issues that some of the other dialogues don't. And so, you know, that's still um, being uh, worked out in terms of we have a pretty good sense of of exactly when and how and where we're going to do that. But I'm not prepared to make any specific announcements at this point. But no, all joking aside, they absolutely do fit together in a way that I think um, creates something that is bigger than the sum of their parts. And um, so it's, it's, uh, it's expansive, but still very valuable.
1: Okay, I'm gonna to cheat to ask one more question. I said I wouldn't, but I'm, I have to. We've talked so much about the security aspects of the Camp David agreements. Do you think that the economic parts of it have been underreported?
2: Yeah, I, I think that, um, I don't know about under-reported. But the economic parts of it can't really be overemphasized. I I think that they're extremely valuable. Um, You know, I think that National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, when he was talking about this at the presser before the meetings began, he spoke in terms of momentum and inertia. And I think that that's uh, particularly applicable when we're talking about the economic relationship. It's important to remember that This summit and the trilateral relationship, it didn't just kind of uh, happen now. It wasn't created in a vacuum. It is, in fact, uh, built on the work of uh, others that have gone before for years and in some cases, decades. And that's true, especially in the economic relationship where we have um, free trade agreements, where we have uh, business to business and people to people ties that are decades old. And I think that the deliverables that are coming out of the summit, the economic deliverables, the technology deliverables, those things are taking it all to a new level um, that I think really should be focused on and, and reported on. I think that the business communities are actually going to be pleased with. Um, but uh, it's probably being overshadowed a little bit by security aspects of the commitment to consult and those. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I think, I think you're right about that. And sometimes the psychology matters too. Even if agreements are not in the texts, sometimes independent actors, universities or, or think tanks or um, industries will kind of think themselves, well, maybe we should do something trilaterally just because they've seen uh, Biden, Yoon, and Kashida and, uh, together. Okay, let me turn to audience questions. Let's see, we'll start from right to left. Over here, please. Uh, Stanley Kober. When I listened to this, the I go back in time, in the 1960s. We had CETA backed up by the Tonkin Gulf Resolution in order to tell people you're going to go up against the mighty United States if you do anything. Didn't work too well, did it? Now I can't help thinking, I can't resist. I see an incipient NATO or Northeast Asia Treaty Organization. And I can't help wondering why will this turn
4: out any better?
2: So let me make sure I understand the the question. Uh, The question is essentially, um, is this trilateral relationship destined to fail on the rocks of, you know, past efforts that haven't been completely fulfilled?
1: There's a saying, history doesn't repeat itself,
2: but it rhymes. And I'm hearing, you know, an echo. You know, we've got, this arrangement, we've got Alcus. It's not identical, but it's very similar. Well, I'll, I'll take a stab at that and then, and then maybe okay. Luke, you, can, you can answer that. But my sense is that, uh, you know, I can tell you having been involved in many of these discussions for quite some time, uh, that you have uh, people who have looked at the ways in which Past efforts have either succeeded or, in some cases, not succeeded, and have worked very, very hard to um, uh, to address the weaknesses of past efforts. And I think that this um, the relationship as it exists now, the trilateral relationship, is uh, well calculated and designed to succeed. And I think that in reality, we are seeing it succeed. Uh, already in many respects. It's not just about the summit, as I said, there are a number of other um, uh, efforts that have gone on before this, uh, in some cases for for years and for decades, and a, a lot of successes, uh, economic and otherwise. So I, I, my sense is that there is every reason to be optimistic, not pessimistic about the future of, of the trilateral relationship.
3: I agree with that as well. I mean, I mean, the you know, especially within defense channels, um, the trilateral relationship has existed for quite some time. It's just reached a new level with this summit. I don't see it's uh, really comparable with a CETO or a NATO or an AUKUS uh, right now. Um, uh, you know, there's 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 very little uh, uh, official cooperation that's been designated uh, compared to those organizations. Um, but just the fact that uh, again the trilateral rela- relationship has existed for for years now, uh, this is just bringing it to a new level. And so I don't think it's I don't think it's destined to fail. I think it's just one part of many multilateral establishments, uh, dialogues, engagements uh, that are uh, all part of the bigger picture throughout uh, throughout the globe.
1: The other story is how things endure too. I mean, this is the 70th anniversary of US-ROK alliance, so it's been remarkably durable. Next year's the 75th anniversary of NATO. So sometimes these things can have an enduring value. And the road right in front of you, you had a question? You had a hand up?
5: Well, thank you so much for your comments. Um, I read an interesting article pretty much saying how, with the United States limited, with this China policy, with uh, bipartisanship, pretty much, certain uh, uh, aggressive China policy. But that not being the case with Japan and South Korea, who want better relationships uh, with China for several reasons, that it was kind of a missed opportunity that the summit didn't include any diplomatic efforts uh, to... Reach across the aisle with uh, other rival countries like China and North Korea, even though it did include a lot of diplomatic efforts among each other. Um, do you think this is a case it was a missed opportunity to cooperate with China and North Korea, say some sort of statement that they will uh, try to cooperate with them, or do you think that was
6: beyond the scope of the summit? Thank you.
2: Yeah, I, I think I would probably um, disagree a little bit with the. Um, The characterization in that article, Um, I think that in reality, the United States has placed a great deal of focus and attention on managing the relationship with the PRC and for that matter, with the DPRK in a constructive way. Taking uh, the DPRK first, um, we have made it very clear that we have no hostile intentions towards North Korea. Um, And we've conveyed that message both privately and publicly. Of course, North Korea has um, engaged in in an unprecedented level of missile testing, um, very aggressive rhetoric. Um, And despite that, we continue to uh, explain both publicly and privately that uh, when North Korea is ready, we are ready to engage in direct discussions in an effort to to manage and lower tensions. Uh, With respect to the PRC, as I mentioned earlier, You know, we have had extremely uh, high level engagement with uh, China, and that is going to continue. Uh, The United States does not seek confrontation. We don't seek conflict. We don't seek a Cold War. And in that sense, I completely disagree with uh, Liu Chao's assessment of the trilateral summit. Uh, What we do seek are opportunities and ways to Uh, explain our very sincere and uh, real concerns about the PRC's behavior. Some of those were outlined directly in the joint statement, especially with respect to uh, the South China Sea and some of the behavior that's happening uh, there now. Um, And we're going to continue to be very clear and very vocal about uh, about those concerns while at the same time uh, working to engage directly with the PRC.
3: The only thing I would add to that is um, I. you know, I see particularly with the PRC, all three countries have communication mechanisms and cooperate with the PRC in their own way. And so, I, 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 like you kind of said towards the end, I think it's out of the scope of this trilateral summit uh, to consider the trilateral as an opportunity to communicate or cooperate with uh, the PRC or, or the DPRK.
1: You know, on this side, uh, in, in the back.
5: Yeah, thank you very much. My name is Rio Nakamura with Japan's Nikkei Asia. Uh, thank you very much for doing this. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about the nuclear issues? Are you going to consult or communicate with Japan and South Korea trilaterally on nuclear planning or collective response to the North Korea's use of nuclear weapons? Thank you
3: so um it was discussed that both countries will remain under the uh, policy of extended deterrence um uh, and then separately of course uh, there were the conversations about consulting uh, and increased communication uh however I believe that uh, extended deterrence will probably continue to be more focused on bilateral than trilateral uh, we'll we'll see in the future how that how that turns out um, but uh, I don't think there's going to be uh any uh, a, a major change that you see right now uh, towards extended deterrence, um, the way it has been uh, already bilaterally with the two countries.
1: Um, you here in front.
0: Um. Grace Kong, um, I have two points. One is a pretty fundamental question. Uh, Given the emphasis on the rules-based international order and while supporting Japan's dramatic increase in military strength, why doesn't the U.S. pressure Japan far more to take legal responsibility for its World War II crimes against humanity? My second point is actually a comment. I, I believe Colonel David Maxwell has come up with an acronym. Um, J. Rockus, J. A. R. O. K. U. S. I, I think that's what he said. So,
6: just throw that out there.
2: <laughs> J. Rockus sounds as good as anything I could have come up with. So, <laughs> I mean, I think at this point we run with J. Rockus. That's that's great. Uh, look, your first question, I think, is is uh, um, very important question to address. I, I think that it. Um, if you take a look at the way that Japan has responded to these uh, concerns over the course of years and decades, take a look at the way that President Yoon has um, responded, for example, to uh, Prime Minister Kishida uh, in Hiroshima. Uh, all of these things suggest a, a real um, development, a real uh, uh, change and maturing and um, Uh, improvement in the relationship that is, in fact, based on uh, the genuine feelings and concerns of the government of Japan, the people of Japan, and and the people and government in the Republic of Korea. So, you know, beyond that, I I think you'd have to ask your question to uh, the government of Japan, the government in South Korea. But my sense is that things are um, improving and that we should focus on that.
1: Yeah, my own sense is that history is not being forgotten. I've seen some commentary that maybe they're trying to brush it aside, but it doesn't feel that way to me. I mean, the statements read like an agreement that uh, they shouldn't let historical issues obstruct important cooperation now. At the same time, cooperation now shouldn't obstruct uh, real reckoning with the past. I think they could both happen.
4: Um, gentlemen here at the glasses.
1: Thanks. Um, about the nuclear umbrella, does that contribute to nuclear non-proliferation, or keeping the genie in the bottle? And um, can you can you say something about the economic deliverables? Does that seems like the arms industry gets most of those? But but AI, I can see stuff like Khan Academy, <laughs> uh, using AI and uh contributing to leveling the playing field in schools. And can you say something about the economic and the non-proliferation.
4: Yeah, so you know, I mean,
2: um, I think that uh, the trilateral relationship, the um, uh, nuclear umbrella, the um, uh, the nuclear consultative group, all of these things are designed to uh, reassure the public in. Japan the Republican in Korea and the public in the United States that our commitment to, uh, to the nuclear umbrella is ironclad that will not change at the same time in the text of the documents that are publicly available, you see a commitment and a desire to uh, find a way in future to move away from uh, nuclear weapons and I think all three countries are, are committed to that uh, goal and that objective while at the same time uh, the United States maintaining its very firm ironclad commitment to, uh, to the defense of our partners and allies. Um, with respect to the economic deliverables, I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear your question. Um, do you mind to
4: say it one more time, please? Oh, I see. Um,
2: well, you know, it, Mark asked this question about whether or not some of the economic deliverable deliverables were being overshadowed by uh, the security related aspects of the summit. And I said that I think that that is true. I think it's more than just what, you know, what people would call the military industrial complex. It cuts across uh, all sectors. You look at the deliverables that are, are in here um, in the documents. I think you'll see that they're incredibly broad. They're going to create a, a lot of uh, new momentum between the United States, uh, the Republic of Korea and Japan, including momentum between our industries in such a way that I think all countries' uh, economic prospects are going to improve and, and over the course of both months and
3: years. I think maybe, maybe a little bit uh, to help answer your question as well. So I know, uh, you know, within the U.S., I know we're interested in uh, increased multilateral research and development initiatives uh, within the defense industry and things like that uh, for AI would be one of them. Um, uh, primarily, they're they're focused bilaterally right now, but this this opens the door for trilateral research and development or uh, operational testing and evaluation um, within defense channels.
1: Yeah, I was going to bundle questions, but our time is so short. I'm just going to take one. So I'm sorry, Peter.
6: I'm. Uh... I'm a Peter Humphrey, an intelligence analyst, and a former diplomat. Uh, just an interesting piece of technology: Japan now has the ability to uh, pick up ultra-low sound. That is to say, when there's a when there's a nuclear test uh, in North Korea, they can hear it as well as uh, feel the seismicity. Uh, Shockingly, that includes missile launches as well. So if Kim Jong-un was stupid enough, uh, brilliant enough to launch his missiles during a typhoon uh, where we couldn't see a damn thing, the only thing that's going to save us is the ultra-low sound and the seismicity. Um, for years, we've had uh, to use the United States as a post box to change intelligence from Korea to Japan or vice versa. Does this agreement sort of do away with that and allow for direct transfers with the U.S. being footnoted. And if I may, any mention at all of Dr. Takashima? Can,
3: can, can you reclarify your intelligence uh, question? You're talking about intelligence uh, with, between... the
6: intelligence sharing between Japan and Korea okay. was, was not really direct, unless it oh, was re- yeah, it, unless good. it was really important and and they give it to the US US within minutes we'd give it to the other guy right, right. so the US is being used as a post box okay. does this now eliminate that and uh and and is uh, on that hotline is there the ability to pick up the phone have a translator standing there uh in both languages and that that kind of instantaneous stuff
3: okay so i think i i understand what you mean now um where the u.s was kind of that uh, facilitator of information between the two countries um we we never really had to be in and and the mechanisms are already in place so they're not mechanisms uh, mechanisms that need to be created or systems that need to be created we already have uh systems in place where japan uh the us and south korea are connected and so they have the opportunity at any time to utilize that uh, to pass information between uh, those two countries, um, versus having the U S use them, uh, independently, but, but this being a, a, a trilateral summit, I think, uh, I, 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 I think because the, and, and that system would be trilateral as well. Um, that system is, is probably going to be utilized more now than it ever was before. And so the information would be open to all three countries, uh, not, not pass through one, not pass through the U S to the other. Uh,
2: there was no discussion of any territorial disputes between the countries.
1: Time really is up, but I want to give you one last chance to say something you wished you'd said, or you wished I'd asked. Any last thought? Um,
2: last thoughts. Well, I think that um, I, I come back to the courage that's been displayed by the leaders, President Biden, President, you, Minister Kishida, and you know this is uh, a, a relationship now. That it, as President Biden said at the press conference, going to exist and move forward uh, for decades." Yeah. Sometimes there's some discussion about, well, what about this or that uh, administration change or this or that?" I think the relationship is uh, on solid ground and has uh, been built on uh, a very important history that is going to continue to grow and progress over the course of, of years to come.
3: Pretty. I, I would uh add on to the I'm surprised more wasn't discussed about administrative or administration changes but um I think uh I think it is uh built on uh, a little bit of security especially uh being focused on at the ASD level and below uh this is really a whole of government approach trilateral uh cooperation so I think that that it, it is safeguarded um, from future administration changes uh, just, just for the fact that uh, there's multiple levels of government that are uh, proceeding with this.
1: Okay, thanks, for It seems a little impolite to ask government representatives about administration changes, so I was saving that for the second panel, but thank you for raising it. Okay, please join me in thanking Seth Bailey and Colonel Deckard. We will take a very brief pause to reset the chairs, maybe five minutes. Stonebridge Group formerly with the Office of U.S. Trade Representative. Sayo Rome is the Associate Director of Programs at Mansfield Foundation, our co-partner of this, for this uh, event this afternoon, so thank you for that. It's a great pleasure to work with you. And Clint Work, who's a Fellow and Director of Academic Affairs, and my colleague here at KEI. So let's start the way we've started the first panel, which is maybe each of you could just give a very capsule description of what you would say the most important point was, or most important thing there is to know about the Camp David meeting. So Eric, do you
7: want to start? Happy to. Um, First of all, just like to thank KEI and Mansfield for allowing me to participate in this very timely discussion and uh, really appreciated the first panel as well. Um, I think our government colleagues probably don't want to brag as much as they should about what was accomplished during the trilateral summit, but I do think it was Remarkable both from a symbolic and substantive standpoint. And I think people don't necessarily appreciate just how difficult it is to reach all of these kinds of agreements to institutionalize trilateral cooperation across the security and economic agenda of important issues to the three countries in the context of all the challenges, particularly uh, in the Uh, Japan-Korea relationship, um, which are well understood and which we uh, began to delve into in the Q&A in the previous panel. Um, But I think it was remarkable what's been accomplished over the past several years, and particularly over the past year with uh, the leadership and courage in Tokyo and Seoul in enabling this kind of cooperation to even be realistic. Um, The other point I wanted to make is the level of institutionalization that's been accomplished in this meeting. We now have commitments from the three countries to have annual trilateral summits between the leaders and annual trilateral cabinet level meetings among all the major security and economic officials of the three countries. I am frightened for the amount of work for the folks in government who have to staff all of these trilateral initiatives, but it's well worth the investment of effort from the three countries. And I think the joint statements really reflected the increasing scope of the multidimensional cooperation uh, that is so important to all three countries. So look forward to the discussion.
1: You know, I think it's a good point. Uh, In the press conference after the event, most of the press coverage was about the fact that the presidents and the secretaries of state, foreign affairs, defense, and national security advisors are going to meet annually. But so will the secretaries of commerce and industry. And those might be very interesting meetings. Okay, Sari, what's your takeaway?
0: Yeah, so can you hear me? Okay, great. So first of all, um, the Mansfield Foundation is really happy to jointly um, host this um, this event with KEI. It's been really great work working with you, Mark and your team. Um, so to your question, I really want to commend um, the the leaders of the, the three countries for for making history um, last Friday. I think this sort of specific standalone trilateral meeting um, is unprecedented, and um, it was completely unthinkable just two years ago. And I think there have been many efforts as we um, heard from the, the, the previous panel uh, efforts behind the scenes during the the, the past couple of years uh, in each country, but I think each leader really stepped up and um, took um, some action to really seize the unparalleled opportunity that is um, described in the spirit of the of Camp Davis David um, at the right time to uh, make this summit happen and um, so. First of all, I think it, this is historic. It's it's all great news. I think it's important to note uh, that the scope of this summit goes beyond uh, the Korean Peninsula. Um, it goes uh, beyond the immediate uh, pressing security concerns in the region. Um, this was not only about discussing these uh, regional concerns, but it was about creating an important precedent It was um, in this trilateral partnership, and I think it's about elevating it to the broader level. Um, It was an effort to institutionalize this partnership and um, to establish some kind of um, initial, strong and durable framework. Um, And it was an effort to, to make it last beyond the current administrations. Uh, as the word forever or decades to come, generations to come um, were were heard in the press conference by the the three leaders. Um, And I think I want to add that the timing um, of this summit in the year leading up to US presidential elections um, is also significant um, as uh, emphasized by the the commitment to consult uh, and um, Biden's response to one of the questions in the press conference uh, where he explicitly underscores the importance for the United States um, to work with allies uh, as opposed to walking away from them, uh, which would make the U.S. Um, weaker. So I think this is this is a really good attempt at institutionalizing the, the partnership. Thank
1: you. I know as President Biden used that word forever too, and that's a pretty serious commitment. It's. Uh, <laughs> marriage vows maybe
5: uh, clinton sure uh well thank you also to the mansfeld foundation for partnering with kei um i don't necessarily disagree with my fellow panelists but i might pump the brakes a little bit um there's been a superlative soup describing this uh, trilateral historic forever lock-in new era new chapter nobody said end of history i'm happy nobody said that um and, and I think there are reasons to, to, to bill it as that, um, for, for the reasons that have been mentioned, so I won't go over them. Um, I do think we have to be careful, though, about setting up unrealistic expectations. Uh, and so I think expectation management moving forward is going to be really important. Um, so I know this is not a one-to-one comparison, but you know, we were engaged in historic diplomacy and rapprochement with Pyongyang five years ago. I know a lot of people doubted that at the time where do we stand today? It couldn't be more different. And Sayori rightly points out, of course, that's a much different relationship. I get it, but I'm using it to, to, to highlight the point. Sayuri makes a very good point that, but two years ago, this wouldn't have been possible. That's because leadership changed, conditions changed. Leadership is going to change again, and conditions are going to change again. Um, so you know, we have, of course, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but we have our own election and a possible multiple felon, excuse me, alleged multiple felon could be re-entering the White House, who openly decries alliances and whose second term, I think, would would lean much more into that sort of narrative if it occurred. Um, but of course, the Biden administration cannot control for that or, or foresee the future. I think what they're doing is trying their best to move this forward. And so we, it hasn't been institutionalized yet. Um, that will take time. That takes, frankly, decades. Um But I think Seth was right to point out uh, National Security Advisor Sullivan's um, expression that this is building momentum and potentially inertia. I added the potentially myself. Um, I think those are both really key words because they denote movement and process. Inertia, of course, is a stickiness against forces that challenge existing arrangements. And there are going to be forces that challenge this trilateral on multiple levels. So I think it's that's very clear-eyed. I think that sort of language is good and can help manage expectations. But I think it's also just important to remember, and I'll and I'll stop after this mark. Um, is as the I think it's the joint fact sheet, but maybe some of the other documents, which I'm still parsing over, mentioned. Um, they were this did not occur in a vacuum. There are existing relationships. There are existing institutions. So again, that's they're building on these and they said they they affirmed exist, excuse me reaffirmed existing understandings and affirmed new ones so again uh, they're building on an architecture that 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 exists um, but it will you know it will encounter rocky shoals in the future
1: thank you for adding that alleged is a qualifier KI is an independent nonpartisan, non non-part- organization Okay, I'd like to say, too, that to now they we're just among private sector friends, um, I'd like the format to be pub conversation. So please feel free to talk to each other, too, and interrupt or comment or ask okay, questions. Okay,
0: then I, then I will. I, I, said, <laughs> I said this is an attempt at institutionalization.
3: There you go. I agree with
1: you. <laughs> okay. Um, Eric, most of the press coverage at Camp David did focus on the military and security aspects. Do you think the economic parts were underreported?
7: Uh, Thanks for the question. And I do think um, in many ways, the reporting was accurate. Um, As with all high-level meetings like this, there's always limited bandwidth. I, uh, in a former life, uh, was a director for Asian Economic Affairs at the National Security Council and was involved in planning and preparing for a variety of uh, the president's Uh, Participation in different Asian summits. And it is a brutal uh, process to tell all of the agencies which of their critical deliverables are left on the cutting room floor before meetings of this kind. So I think it is unsurprising that the focus was on a subset of key um, cooperation initiatives with a major focus on the national security um, agenda. So the commitment to consult the institutionalization of trilateral defense cooperation in a variety of forms, including these uh, joint military exercises, the creation of new dialogue, uh, regular high level dialogue channels focusing on these uh, national security issues. All of that, I think, is unsurprising and appropriate Um, But there was some discussion of economic issues and some elevation and institutionalization of discussions of the economic agenda. Now, it should be said that much of this economic agenda was characterized by this sort of merging of economic and security priorities into the sort of broad economic security uh, policy basket So a lot of discussion of supply chain security, um, uh, ensuring uh, the uh, safeguarding of critical and emerging technologies, working together to create uh, early warning mechanisms to identify threats uh, to critical supply chains, enhancing cooperation um, to respond to those threats, including potentially to economic coercion, In the subtext of all of this is an effort to trilateralize cooperation on export controls uh, and other uh, potential mechanisms uh, to deal with technology leakage that could undermine national security. Um, There was no uh, explicit discussion of outbound investment reviews, which of course uh, the U.S. has just issued an executive order. Uh, beginning the process of establishing a limited investment uh, review, outbound investment review system. But I suspect that topic was discussed at least among lower-level officials. So I do think there was a significant discussion of the importance of these issues, albeit largely through the framing of economic security, as opposed to what Many of us used to work on who did economic issues in the U.S. government, which was trade and investment, liberalization and promotion efforts, uh, of which there was, again, not surprisingly, relatively little uh, discussion.
1: Let me take advantage of your government expertise from the past, too, to ask about the difference in the way we do diplomacy. Under the Trump administration, everything was bilateral. And now under the Biden administration, everything is multilateral. Is that a return to normal, or is the multilateralism something new?
7: Well, I think it's uh, in many ways it's part of a sort of long-standing evolution of U.S. policy, particularly policies intended to uh, strengthen our um, ability to affect outcomes in the Indo-Pacific, as we now refer to it, and also to respond to the challenges posed by China. I think there's a a growing understanding that it requires broad coalitions and broad partnerships to address the sort of multifaceted uh, security challenges in the region. So trilateral initiatives with key partners like Japan and Korea are very much a kind of natural effort. Of course, the Biden administration had a particular motivation to focus on uh, both bilateral and multilateral alliance maintenance activities because of the interregnum of the Trump administration, which was um, in most ways uh, quite hostile to multilateralism, with the exception of a few things like the Quad. But I I do think it's a a return to a existing trajectory, um, but an important uh, augmentation of that effort. Okay, Clint, were you reaching for your mic?
5: Just very briefly to say, we talk about where this trilateral uh, relationship is situated among broader relationships and the economic security piece. And I want to give Troy Stangaron, my colleague, credit for this because he, he reminds people of this all the time. When we talk about some of the mechanisms that Eric just rightly mentioned, they really can't be effectuated and, and, and successfully implemented without European participation, without other country participation. So it really does, the, the nature of the issues go, go beyond the trilateral, right? Um, which I think is, is, is helpful, too, to, to remind ourselves of.
1: Okay, um, thank you. Sayuri, during the Leaders Press Conference after this summit, uh, they talked about supply chains and they talked about energy security. I don't recall hearing them say much of anything about climate change. Is that because there's already so much cooperation on climate change, or do the words energy security actually mean cooperation on climate change?
0: Right, so um, in the press conference, um, I think, that, yeah, there, there was no mention of that, but uh, climate crisis was mentioned in the joint statement and um, in the Camp David principles, uh, there was a joint commitment to uh, cooperate in, cooperating in addressing climate change. And um, I I think that's good that that it was there, but there was no elaboration. There was no uh, further elaboration on how the three nations uh, would be Cooperating on on that front, and I think the Biden administration, especially in the past two years, um, has made some important progress um, to work more closely bilaterally uh, with Japan and with South Korea to address uh, climate change. But um, yeah, we have yet to see how these three countries will need to um, to be in, in, will will include this area in this trilateral f- framework, and um, it will be interesting to see how Japan and and South Korea will be working together on that front. Um, of course, all three countries have uh, shared interest um, in energy security, uh, especially on promoting alternative sources of energy, nuclear energy, um, generation, uh, use of uh, natural gas. So the, the discourse around uh, energy security is definitely linked to um, climate change policy. But at the end of the day, um, I think this specific summit was a uh, an effort to establish a first uh, record of trilateral cooperation on a much broader level um, and a higher level. And as Prime Minister Kishida repeated uh, multiple, time, multiple times, multiple uh, times, multi layered uh, cooperation. So I'm really curious to see what uh, new trilateral initiatives on climate change we'll see develop in the in the coming year. Um, also how they will be aligning their uh, climate change targets, and especially uh, how they will consult for any joint messaging on that.
1: Okay, let me take advantage of your expertise too to ask you a question a lot of people are asking about Japan-South Korea relations. Now, does the Camp David meet, meeting uh, signal a real ch- turning point or change in relations, or is just another high point in a cycle of up and down relations?
0: Uh, definitely the latter, uh, a high point in a cycle of, um, up and down, uh, relations. And I think, um, I think the, the historical issues that have been plaguing the bilateral relations are here to stay. They're lingering. They're not going away anytime soon or ever. Uh, if I may say, um, Personally, uh, I think that it will be really, really difficult for historical issues to uh, to be resolved. Uh, and I think uh, the the legal questions regarding uh, forced lab- laborers uh, that President Yoon or the the media really painted it as a um, uh, he 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 solved it but actually they're not solved. It's only partial. And so so there is still so much uh, to talk about and uh, definitely South Korea, Japan relations, bilateral relation, uh, relations are the, the weak link here. And um, I think the biggest threat to uh, sustaining this um, Japan-South Korea partnership is the domestic public in each of the, the country. Uh, including the U.S. Um, for the, the trilateral part of, of this discourse. Uh, of course, the, the the opposition party in in South Korea is very very vocal about um, anything that President Yoon does and uh, how uh, they, they're they're describing what President Yoon um, does as um way to um, suppress um, Korean in, independence and uh getting just uh closer to the US and Japan um so th- so there is a lot of very loud discourse there in South Korea. And I think in Japan as well, I mean, Prime Minister Kishida's uh, disapproval ratings just today are 50%. They're very low. Uh, and um, I mean, disapproving ratings are very high. And um, and uh, they're mainly uh, about domestic issues as well. So people in Japan probably are not um thinking that much about uh foreign policy. So um yeah, it will depend on um domestic public, uh publics and polarized politics uh in all three countries, I think, and especially in Japan and Korea.
1: Yeah, there's there are people who say that uh, that the wartime issues are generational, that the ages will soften with time. That's not my experience. I worked on Balkans policy for a long time, and history stays with you. It doesn't fade with generations. Um, it makes a big difference. William Faulkner said the past is never dead. It's not even past. So I think these issues will stay with us.
0: Yeah, for sure. I, I think for, for everyone, I mean, it's good that history stays stays with us. But at the same time, I think um, there is so much politicization um, on all sides. Mm-hmm. So it, it is really hard to overcome these obstacles because they 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 are... Uh, they hit an an emotional chord um, in the public's mind. So,
5: yeah. Yeah. Can I just pub pub style jump in? Um, I think it was President Yun who mentioned in the the press conference afterwards that they're trying to to create a bridge between the legal issues and and the court cases and and then the higher level sort of diplomatic agreements. But to Sayori's point, um, and this may have been what you were alluding to. There are still lots of cases in Korean courts that are working their way up, and they are going to work their way up. Some will get to the Supreme Court. So this is not just going away in people's minds. There are going to be, you know, pertinent legal questions that that have outcomes um, that have to be dealt with somehow. And you know, you have the leadership of this is before the trilateral summit of the opposition party in South Korea that has said that Yoon is is moving the country one step closer. This isn't an exact quote, but this is essentially what he said. One step closer to the rising sun flag once again flying over Korean sovereign territory. So, you know, bombastic, fine, but it gets to, to the point, it gets politicized, and uh, that, that, that's not going away. That's
4: okay. what I was alluding to. <laughs> there will be, after this meeting, this... this
0: I'm so sorry <laughs> forgot about that after the summit yes there, there will be some some news about that and uh you know the,
5: I mean, they're already they've already yeah spoken about it yeah
0: right yeah and they're at so many different levels uh, at the at the court in 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 korea so they are always ready to re and uh, they're they're not going away
7: if i could just jump in on that point again um I, I unfortunately have to agree with all of those uh, cautionary comments um but I do think there is value in the institutionalization of these high-level dialogue mechanisms because it increases the costs the diplomatic costs for Korea for undertaking particular policy shifts um I would I would think that it should have at least some mild impact in the sort of decision-making process of the relevant government officials, the Korean courts, and the public, and and uh, other stakeholders in thinking about all of the disruption that's caused when there is a breakdown in relations um, caused by the handling of these particular types of cases um and i can say that having spent some time in seoul and tokyo as i'm sure my colleagues have during the downturn it was really terrible and the sort of lack of trust and the inability to move forward with a host of ongoing cooperation uh, or planned cooperation either government to government or disruptions to business and commercial relationships it's really significant. So I think anything that can be done to try to create a buffer, but also to make explicit the costs of handling this issue in a way that uh, causes another major disruption in the relationship. And I think the other aspect that you know everyone should consider is the stakes of failing to have the kinds of coordinated security responses to the very real threats and challenges that all three countries face, North Korea being uh, the sort of proximate near-term challenge with uh, uh, the continuing um, provocations from the DPRK with their missile program and ongoing uh, nuclear weapons program. But many of the serious issues uh, in the region more generally, including those relating to uh, China's uh, uh, activities in the South China Sea and Taiwan Strait. So these are very, very important issues to all three countries. And there's a lot that can be lost when the wheels come off uh, the bilateral and now the trilateral relationship, if that happens in the future.
1: You know, it's complicated. Another buffer seems to be people-to-people relations. There's a lot of tourism, um, very high level right now. There's a lot of cultural mutual attraction between Korea and Japan. So it's a, it's a complex relationship. Um, Clint, let's turn to the Indo-Pacific variable geometry, if we can use that term. So now with a quad and IPEF and APEC and AUKUS and these other things, how does the new US-Japan-Korea trilateral arrangement fit in with all of that?
5: Um, I think in your initial question, as I as I recall, you you phrased it as de- still developing um, arrangements, which I think is the right way to put it, because none of those are finished products either. I mean, APEC, of course, is the oldest. This also points just to this is the academic in me. Um, there are you know longstanding historical studies of of regionalism of how institutionalized it is in the Euro Atlantic and how under institutionalized uh, the Asia Pacific now what we refer to as the Indo Pacific is and there are various reasons for this. Um, but the the different uh, institutions you mentioned these minilaterals. I see these just on a a broad level, on one hand, a genuine effort to, um, to create this, this sort of lattice work of, of, um, institutions that do have overlap in some ways, but also a lot of distinct issue areas, um, to uphold a degree of order and normalcy in the region. But I think the effort is also a, a clear indication of how much the international order has eroded it's not just a it's not just a, a the latest indication of the underinstitutionalization of the re- of the region it's part of that um, but I think it's a genuine and um uh sort of uh, uh, sort of intense focus effort to try to build institutions because the norms that, that they're trying to uphold are are very much under challenge um obviously tightening the trilateral arrangement adds to these um, but i would you know i would say you know, AUKUS is having a tough time getting stood up. There are issues with information sharing and other things. And, and, you know, when we look at when it was announced, there were lots of thought pieces, there were lots of editorials, there was lots of praise, but then they got down to the brass tacks of implementation and they're having some trouble. And I'm not saying that they won't be able to to actualize it. I think they probably will. Um, But the same applies for the trilateral. And so one thing I would say I focus, as you know, Mark, intensely on the U.S.-South Korea relationship. So I think like, bringing the lens down just to the bilateral piece, so on the level of uh, consultative architecture and just military exercises, when you look at the U.S.-South Korea alliance, there has been a, a, a real evolving alphabet soup of consultative mechanisms from the early 2000s, starting with the future of the alliance talks up to the most recent establishment of the nuclear consultative group. And each of those mechanisms was billed as addressing uh, and affirming commitments to certain issues that, 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 that would you know, tighten cooperation uh, moving forward. But then we needed new mechanisms because apparently the previous ones weren't doing the trick. Um, that doesn't mean that this isn't progress. I think it's just halting fits and starts progress, right? And so I look in the trilateral context. You have the existing defense trilateral talks, the DTTs. Those were established in 2008 or nine, if if I'm not mistaken. They've continued even through the nadir of of relations in 2018, 2019. They didn't work so well then, um, because they were at such odds with one another. But they existed, and once conditions change, they re-energize these things. They reapply themselves to them, and maybe they add new consultative architectures above them. So, um, I, I would expect to see the same thing with whatever institutions, the Indo-Pacific Dialogue, and, and whatnot, comes out of this. When it comes to military exercises, um, clearly they can deepen, as Luke was saying, cooperation, coordination. Um, you know A lot of people talk about the US Rock Alliance as the most combined interoperable alliance in the world. I've even made this claim, but the more I study it, the more I realize there are a lot of gaps once you get close to the action. Even Even certain communication systems that don't necessarily talk to one another, depending on how they utilize them. And so uh, even so that combined alliance is far more combined than US forces Japan and the self defense forces of Japan in fact that's not combined at all as luke mentioned it's a parallel structure so now we're talking about tightening linkages between the three when there are still gaps in the bilateral pieces so it's a it's a parallel effort right they need to they need to strengthen on both sides bilateral um but i think there are real even technical barriers to deepening cooperation um sort of real-time data sharing. I think if we think about this in broad terms, they're doing it and they can continue to do it and deepen it. Now they have sort of momentum and a remit to do it. But there are existing challenges that, you know, getting into the weeds, which I'm not going to do here, that realize I think it's important to exercise for all the reasons that Luke mentioned preparedness, but also because you start to see where the holes and the gaps are. You start to see where the vulnerabilities are. and then, of course, work to patch those up. That was very long-winded.
1: Well, it's a complicated question. And uh, this merging of the economic and uh, national security issues, too, I think complicates it. Because organizations used to be strictly economic. It can't be anymore. If supply chains and, and quantum are part of, the, part of the dialogue, that's national security also. So, um, Sayuri, can I kind of put that to you, too? Do the, are these yeah. organizations all play unique and helpful roles, or are they competing?
0: I, I think I, I really agree with you, uh, Clint. Um, But also every multilateral partnership is different. Every uh, multilateral relationship um, has different purposes. And I think um, the the most recent ones promoted by the the, the Biden administrations really come from the fact that Biden came into power wanting to show that um, alliances are in the interests of the U.S. and they they are really important um, for the U.S. Again, to um, to distinguish himself from uh, from his predecessor, so I, I think there was a lot of that. Um, I think also that this trilateral partnership uh, U.S., Korea, Japan is not just any trilateral relationship. Is something that had that has had so much potential, uh, but has never been really. Tapped because of the the bad relationship between uh, Japan and South Korea, and I think what we're seeing now is a Japanese leader and a Korean leader really coming together to realize that um, they need to pr- prioritize that potential um, and um so I, I think this is going to be a key trilateral forum that's going to add to the other uh, multilateral uh ones and I think Japan in the rec- in in recent years uh has really worked very hard to um to create more partnerships uh that go beyond the US Japan alliance um so with Europe uh with the EU with uh ASEAN with um a whole uh, other set of countries Because Japan now realizes, uh, throughout the Abe administration and now with uh, Kishida, that Japan can be more powerful if it expands these relationships and um, it goes beyond the US-Japan alliance. And I think Japan's preferred international order is uh, rules-based, multilateral, inclusive. So I think that's what Japan is also trying to do.
1: It seems to be a feature of modern diplomacy. It used to be if you had an international organization you try to put together, first thing you do is find a headquarters for it and a secretariat. And that's not true anymore. All these new organizations are kind of free-floating and flexible. So um, I guess that's part of it. And also, bringing the Europeans also. You've mentioned that point, I think, that the Atlantic makes an awful lot of difference these days. It's the idea that you've got an Indo-Pacific theater and Atlantic theater seems to be less true when you've got the Ukraine and pressures from China and other places going on. Um, Eric, back to you. One big hole in the Camp David agreement seems to me, and the rest of the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy, is a lack of any mention of trade promotion or WTO reform, which I think our our Asian Indo-Pacific partners would like to see. The IPEF uh, has a constructive agenda, but it's not a replacement for the TPP, on which the U.S. has turned its back. So has trade become less relevant in this era of industrial policy and supply chain resiliency? Or is the Biden administration's trade policy a weakness in its Indo-Pacific strategy?
7: Uh, <clears throat> this is a painful question for me since I used to work at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative uh, at a time when we were um, very focused on a strengthening uh, the multilateral rules-based trading system and the WTO in particular, um, uh, but also pursuing a robust and ambitious uh, FTA agenda with uh, partners around the world, including in the Asia-Pacific. So I I do think it's a very serious challenge to the Biden administration, but not just the Biden administration. This is a challenge for the United States because of the Deterioration of bipartisan support for trade liberalization generally and for free trade agreements as a mechanism uh, to obtain uh, new markets for U.S. goods, to strengthen global trading rules and to uh, create um, more enduring positive economic relationships with our partners. So there was a strategic and diplomatic mandate for pursuing trade agreements uh, in the past. And because of this, as I said, bipartisan deterioration and support for free trade, we can no longer utilize those mechanisms. I think that's a serious challenge. Um, It manifested earliest with the WTO. The WTO, I think, had begun to run aground uh, many years earlier as a forum for multilateral trade liberalization, that the failure of the Doha round and the sort of general lack of energy for um, uh, creating trade liberalization through WTO negotiations, I think um, really reflected this Um, failing support among key members of the international trading system, and I think the unique challenges posed by China as well. So I think that was a serious issue. It's uh, something that has obviously metastasized to the uh, enforcement agenda of the WTO. The WTO now is no longer functioning to enforce uh, WTO rules on its membership because of the uh, inability to reform and create a firm foundation uh, for the uh, WTO uh, uh, litigation system. So that, I think, is, you know, kind of the the, the second uh, sort of failing of the WTO system. And there seems to be a, a very little appetite, certainly in Washington. But I think there's a sort of failing ambition globally to try to save the WTO, um, which puts more pressure on all of the other mechanisms by which uh, countries can um, create uh, trade rules to uh, um, create level playing field or address some of the uh, negative externalities that go with uh, expanding trade and investment, and also promoting liberalization uh, with uh, interested parties. So the United States has, I think, a very robust uh, trade and economic agenda that is in the area of economic security, as as we've discussed. But I think we have a very limited agenda with respect to uh, promoting trade liberalization and um, therefore limited leverage to uh, push for um, a seat at the table in writing a whole host of trade rules that used to go with these FTA negotiations where we offered the very substantial carrot of improved access to the US market. So when you don't offer that anymore, it becomes much more difficult uh, to incentivize your trading partners to agree to a set of rules that aren't necessarily consistent with their domestic rules and procedures or necessarily always uh, in the interest of some of their key stakeholders so we've lost that opportunity um as exemplified by the decision early in the trump administration to pull out of the tpp but the i think enduring unwillingness by either party to meaningfully pursue uh, a, a sort of renewal of uh, trade promotion authority uh, and a renewal of our fta agenda so i, I think it's a serious deficiency in U.S. policy, and it's one that both parties, I think, need to consider very seriously. Uh, unfortunately, probably not until after our next election cycle. Yeah, If then, I mean, not to pile on, but I'm going to pile on. Uh, I noticed that uh,
1: President Biden, in his last two State of Union addresses, never used the word trade, which I think is kind of remarkable. And the Biden administration has continued the Trump administration's trade restrictions. So not good days for trade. I mean years ago, I attended an event at Sasakawa Foundation, and it was the U.S. Pacific Fleet Commander, Admiral Scott Swift. And I, some of the audience asked him a Q&A period, what's your biggest strategic concern in the Asia Pacific? And Admiral Swift said, "It's we will not follow up through the TPP.
7: Yeah, just to chime in on that, um, you know, I think we've probably all had the opportunity to talk to uh, senior U.S. military leaders In the past who have said things like uh for example admiral blair another PACOM commander who said um you know tpp and trade liberalizing initiatives of that kind bind the united states more uh effectively to our partners in the region and are a key part of the way that we compete with china um so it has this strategic dimension uh that we're losing out on now i should say that we have paid much less of a price, in terms of our competition with China for influence in the region, than we might have, uh, for a variety of reasons. One of them uh, being the ways that China has behaved, um, in terms of its turn towards uh, an increasing state-dominated role in the economy after a period of uh, of liberalization and market orientation, uh, as well as uh, uh, I think some increased perception of risk in participating in the Chinese economy, uh, some of which we've helped create through our export controls and sanctions and weaker Forced Labor Protection Act requirements, which raise the compliance costs if you're going to do a business uh, with Chinese partners. But some of it is China's own policies, for example, uh, creating vast uncertainty about Uh, what constitutes uh, national security information that you could be uh, prosecuted under the Espionage Act in China uh, for what we would consider normal market research or commercial information gathering activities in China. And now, of course, China is in the midst of what appears to be a significant slowdown in the economy that could be sustained over some time. So, we have, uh, I think, paid less of a price in terms of the relative appeal of economic cooperation with China versus the U.S. Um, but that's still, that still—that doesn't mean we're not making a, a significant strategic error in uh, the way we are engaging in uh, this trade policy.
1: Okay. Well, since you and I are kind of warming up on the subject, which means it's a good time to change the topic. Huh? <laughs> so, um, Clinton, sorry, um, let me put a question to you before I turn to the audience. And that is the Chinese criticism of the, um, of the trilateral arrangement and even Indo-Pacific strategies. They say the U.S. is moving to contain China. And that's, you can see it in all these arrangements being made around the Indo-Pacific. Do you think that's a valid criticism, or how do you see it? Is it containing China?
4: I mean, I,
5: I don't think containment is the right word because the world is... It's not the late forties anymore. Um, the two there are blocks forming, I think, to to a degree. Um, maybe not blocks, but there are different poles. Um, but the interconnections are, I think, too multivarious and deep to to talk about containment in terms of there being a wall. Um, but if there's there's no doubt that the US policy is it, 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 there's a and it's been happening over several years increasingly of late a recognition that there is a strategic confrontation with the people's republic of china we're pretty explicit about this um so i, I don't know what what more to say necessarily about that um I, you know i think the biden administration is doing its best to try to put a floor under how bad things get to try to identify areas to cooperate. You know, Seth had mentioned all the different top level envoys and, and officials that have been visiting. We've all tracked this. You know, it's, I don't think it's in any, any of our interests for this relationship to, to degrade further or more rapidly. Um, but there is no doubt that this is the strategic rivalry confrontation, whichever adjective you want to use, or excuse me, now you want to use, of our time. And I, and I don't foresee that changing in, in my lifetime. But, but if that's true, Sari, I'll, I'll turn to you too, but uh, if that's the case, then wouldn't it be good to
1: have countries who are not part of the two blocks, to have some bridges between them? It seems like people feel they're being forced to choose between the U.S. and China. I'm not sure it's, that's true, but it's the perception.
0: Um, about the... Uh, Beijing's uh, Beijing's comment about, you know, cold war mentality, that's something that Beijing has been saying for 20 years. They 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 always react uh, um with uh, with this phrase um and they're right. Um mm-hmm. it, it, it's just like the the cold war, this is cold war mentality that we should not um condone. Uh, it's it's the same playbook that uh, we've been hearing for for 20 years. So, um I, of course I'm not surprised and um I feel like Beijing has is always very sensitive to these uh perceptions of um other countries ganging up on on China. So I think it, it's been very vocal about about it and uh that's from Beijing's point of view I think uh it just makes sense for them to phrase it to frame it that way. Um I think Japan and South Korea, for example, have different concerns, security concerns, threat perceptions about China. And um, Japan, Tokyo is really concerned about um, China uh, as a main threat, while Korea is more focused on the Korean peninsula. And I think this last week's joint statement um, was also an initial Effort to show convergence in security concerns uh, and security priorities, um, which is reflected in the statement where the three countries um, jointly oppose any unilateral attempt uh, to change the status quo in the region with, without uh, nominating China, of course. So, yeah, I think it's a, a yes and a no for for your question. I think you're you're exactly right.
5: Just quick add on. So the the one actually novel thing about the document the statement was it did actually list specific chinese actions and maritime claims which has that language has appeared in us japan bilateral leader level statements but never before in us south korea joint level statements or trilateral statements so that was a new uh, that's something to note that's the first to my knowledge that the south korean government on any level particularly the leader level has signed off on a statement that mentions specific Chinese actions, which are framed in the undermining these, uh, these norms and, and order that, we, that we, stand, we stand for.
1: Okay, I'm asking the question rhetorically. I don't, I don't expect an answer, but one thing I've always been puzzled why is why China doesn't do better at its relations with uh, Japan and South Korea. It wouldn't take much for China to make a positive gesture in direction of Tokyo and Seoul. It would get a very good response. I mean, both countries would like to see some kind of a positive relationship with China, but China doesn't make the effort. It's actually insulting and has been toward the Camp David uh, summit, too. So it's odd. It must be that China just sees the world as being a G2 world, and it doesn't matter that much other countries think.
5: I think you could say the same for North Korea, too. Yeah. Yeah, they could make the effort.
1: Okay, let me turn to audience questions. We've got one right here.
7: Um, I guess I'll chime in on that one. So... uh as was mentioned i think japan and korea have an array of relationships that involve china the uh, china japan uh, korea uh ongoing summit process uh the efforts to conclude a trilateral fta um cptpp of course um uh china has expressed an interest in becoming a member um so uh both Japan and Korea have tremendous equities in terms of their economic and diplomatic relationships with China. But I think um, the, the willingness to deepen explicit security cooperation, including on a trilateral basis with the United States, reflects a um, perception of China... Uh, that goes back to some of the point you were raising about China's behavior and how it has created a perception of threat in both Seoul and Tokyo. And I think the the view that China is a growing market and an opportunity to uh, obtain uh, economic benefits, and that it is worth whatever risks might be entailed through. Uh, um, concluding binding trade agreements with China that lock you in to a particular trade and economic relationship with China, I think there's been a reevaluation of the appeal. So um, it's not just the sort of disruptions in the diplomatic relationships between Korea and Japan and China, it's also a reevaluation of what it means to have a deeper uh, uh, economic relationship with China and whether you want to make it more difficult to engage in the kind of de-risking that I think many of China's trading partners are now considering. So I, I think this, this trilateral uh, momentum with the United States is in, in a way an implicit uh, assessment of the appeal of trilateralism or multilateralism uh, with China.
1: Yeah, I think I'd say, too, to repeat a point I made earlier, these uh, relationships in the Indo-Pacific are flexible, rather fluid. So I think one organization that uh, or one grouping that doesn't even have a name was actually quite important is what I would call a quint. In fact, uh, the U.S., EU, NATO, uh, Japan, South Korea, Australia are meeting all the time and they talk all the time. The NATO summits in Madrid and Vilnius were in a way meetings of this quint organization. And they're all they're all in Rammstein together doing the Ukraine uh, coordination. So no one uses that word. That seems to exist also.
5: They're also in both UNC Rear and UNC HQ.
1: That's true too. So there's you, sorry I'm peeling it. There's a lot of variable geometry. Yes.
8: American side, it's secretary of commerce, Romando, and South Korea side, it's the national security advisor. And Japan side is the deputy chief cabinet secretary. Is the third person signal some message to the trilateral partners or domestic audience? Because I just, you know, there's less mention about the third person at a summit. And I just think, of, is there any you know, implications or some signaling about the third person they choose at a summit?
5: I'm, I'm not sure i fully followed the third
8: so they are the third person beside the uh the president and also the uh the foreign minister and also the third person beside the summit so they are different like they are not all of them are national security advisor but they are Romando. so why romandos there so and there's a national sec- security advisor from the south korea side yeah so is there any implications or signal
5: I, I mean, I you know, I, I have no idea why certain individuals were chosen um, protocol wise, but but I, I think it does reflect like annualizing these meetings, a lot of which happen already with different levels and different departments and agencies. Um, it's a degree to 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 make a more systematic framework where this is signaling that this is happening more regularly. Um, I don't know if that really answers your question. Uh, my shorter answer to your question is I don't know. <laughs>
7: Yeah, I I don't think one should overread the particular participation, the delegations that uh, uh, joined the meeting from each country. Um, You know, this is a leader summit. It was a short discussion between leaders. Um, The outcomes of the summit sort of created formal dialogue channels among all of the relevant senior officials from the three countries. So I don't think any particular agency is getting short shrift um, in in the trilateral. I think there's probably, um, you know, uh, specific reasons why the delegations were constituted the way they were. Um, but I don't think it reflects it's not there's no uh, secret meaning to the future of trilateral cooperation based on those uh, participants, I don't think.
1: Okay, I'll go ahead and overinterpret. Well, why not? <laughs> um, my overinterpretation is that uh, the Secretary of Commerce was there because dialogue is already pretty well set up between the SecDefs and the Treasury Secretaries. They all know each other very well. I'm not sure how much the Secretary of Commerce has actually spent time with the Japanese and Korean equivalents, and especially 2nd sake a new mechanism. So maybe then she was there to try to help move that along to get put that in
4: place. Okay, back in the room.
3: Um, hello. Um, uh, so my question for
1: anyone on the panel. No, it's for it's for the online audience. Some need to have oh, okay. your microphone.
3: I don't know if they can hear me, but um basically my general question is do you feel like the results of this summit present um creative opportunities for people-to-people relationship building outside of government agency um
4: relationship building? Yes. <laughs>
5: uh yeah so i I actually think that I think that's some of the lowest hanging fruit, uh, and I don't mean that it's less important. I think it's easiest to achieve and it's also most I, I think easiest to sustain, and that builds cohorts sort of trilateral cohorts over time in multiple different industries and sectors so I think like the joint research that you know uh, my colleague Tom ramage pointed out to me in, in the joint fact sheet which i hadn't even seen until this morning they talked about working with johns hopkins reverb um and and other uh, sort of sort of next generation programs i think this is the sort of thing there are um opportunities there um and i think this is where a lot of investment should should go um because when we talk about the future as i talked about the future rocky shoals that the trilateral relationship is going to encounter I think the more you lean into building uh, sort of generational relationships, and we've seen this in both respective bilateral relationships, there are whole constituencies in these of these alliances in both countries that go back generations. And so, when these relationships encounter difficulties, which they do, these are the folks; these are the groups that write op-eds that talk about these things that. That talk to their folks in Japan, in their friends in Japan and Korea, and sort of, and and justify to maybe a doubtful U.S. public specifically about why we need these relationships. This is why we need them. This is why they're important. So I think those are critical because governments, elections happen, they come and go, uh, policy trajectories shift, but those ties are that's what undergirds these relationships
0: yeah and if i may i completely agree with you clint, clint. it's um low hanging fruit and i was actually happy to see that um there was uh, the the decision uh after the summit i mean in the summit um to hold um to strengthen ties between uh, future generations uh, for for the, the three countries and the um, ROK US Japan global um, leadership youth summit and the uh, women's empowerment um, initiatives as, as well so so this was a, a really good thing and i think this is something that we all can can work on and uh, i think they should be um they should be uh, promoted and, and sponsored uh, much more and we've we've all seen with covid what happened based basically, with the interruption of, um, of travel and of exchanges. Um, Japan suffered immensely, the US as well. And I think um, that's why we need to work uh, a, a lot about, on this, and this is what our community does. And um, I think it's a, it's a really easy thing to do, but it's also really fundamental to promote these trilateral initiatives
7: if i could just uh, chime in on that um and recognize the mansfield foundation for all of its contributions in supporting uh uh these people to people contacts and i'm constantly run into people when i was serving in the us government and since then uh who have been mansfield fellows and had a chance to spend time in japan and interact with uh, Japanese officials that they build friendships with. These are the kinds of programs that build enduring ties and help uh, build mutual understanding uh, when times are difficult, as they inevitably will be. So I think doing that on a trilateral basis is really valuable. I suspect there will be many more examples of uh, initiatives to promote people-to-people ties among the three countries that will emerge from these other dialogue mechanisms that were launched at the summit. So uh, I certainly would hardly endorse greater investment in all of those kinds of things.
1: Thank you for Mansfield. great work in people-to-people ties. It would have been criminal not to mention that. So I would have forgotten. Thank you. Um, I was very struck in the press conference by the reference to exchange programs among national laboratories. They said it explicitly. So that's not non governmental. It's governmental, but it's also people to people. That's really important stuff. Um, here, please. Yeah, I see time's running. So this is for your last
5: question. Thank you. I'm Han from Korean National Defense University. My question is to all but as many Dr. Lomei, because you uh,
6: just mentioned about this domestic political landscapes. So as we, we are talking about the acronym, this. J Rock, Rock uh, J J, Ruckus, J. Ruckus, J. Ruckus, J. Ruckus. or the
5: Kuzaius, right? This is very sensitive issue. Who is the first in the line, the Korea or Japan? You know, although this kind of debate is the seems of the idiot, but you know, this in Korea there are already some skepticism or critics about that. This, who has the most gained in in from this summit? This, Number one, U.S. and then number two, Japan, or those uh, about this Korea. So, my question is, is: What is most important benefit for the Korea in the short term, and what will you say to the Korean people to persuade that this summit is also good to Korea in the term today? Thank you.
1: Who has a thirty-second answer to that?
0: Um, yeah, I can try. So, the, the one good thing that came out of the recent polls um, in in South Korea is that. Um, the, 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 the country that's that Koreans dislike the most is China and not Japan anymore, which is, I guess, a good thing um, for Japan-Korea uh, relations. Um, so I, I think you're right. These kind of... Idiotic debate on you know protocols and th- things like that and, and rivalries is 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 really something that matters, uh, especially in Korea, but in Japan as well in the Japanese among the Japanese public, and that's again that's here to stay and uh, we're going to have to to, to deal with that and um, there's a lot of politicization on all these little small details uh, about. Uh, protocol and and who the United States likes more, or who is uh, m- m- prioritizing uh, it more. So, yeah, this is here to stay. Sorry.
1: Speaking as a former State Department officer, protocol is not idiotic. <laughs> <laughs> it's,
0: it's, I, I didn't mean I it that way. I'm not taking the debate about this kind I of I mean, thing I understand. is a little
1: idiotic. Okay, uh, thank you all for joining us. Time has run out. I'd like to mention that the next KEI event uh, will be on August 30th in which Professor Rory Medcalf of Australian National University will be here to talk to us about the South Korean-Australian relationship in the Indo-Pacific. You can find details on our website at keia.org. We hope to see you then. So please join me in thanking Eric Sayori and Clint.
0: Thank you for listening. For more Korea content, keep an eye on our podcast feed.